Statistics are moldable and malleable things, but sometimes they help us to see realities more clearly. And there has been a study every few years by um, a couple of different organizations in evangelicalism to test the, the belief systems of people in America. And they test them divided into different groups. And what always interests me about this is what the evangelicals say, people who self-identify as an evangelical. Just a couple of these statistics. There were 35 or 40 different questions on this. I'm not going to go through them all, but I want you to get a, a feeling of what the 2022 responses were of evangelicals, people that profess the gospel and say that they are gospel-oriented churches. The question, God accept the accepts the worship of all religions. Now, this was a Likert scale, so I'm not giving you all the different um, five categories, but of the people that said agree or strongly agree, I just wonder how many evangelicals you think would agree or strongly with agree with this statement. God accept the worship, accepts the worship of all religions. 58%. Now, the counter to that because all of these are trying to figure out, do they understand the question? What are they, what are they hearing when they read the question? 87% of evangelicals still say that Jesus is the only way to eternal life. So that's safe for now. But that's only 87% of people who believe in preaching the gospel of Jesus brings eternal life. Only 87% say that it actually is true. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 44% agreed or strongly agree with that statement of evangelicals. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 55% of evangelicals agree or strongly agree with that. Every Christian has an obligation to join a local church. 51% of evangelicals think that is a true statement. Agree or strongly agree. 44% disagree or strongly disagree. And finally, if that's true, the question, worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. 56% of evangelicals strongly agree or agree with that statement. Now that is one survey, people's own profession. They could have been people, there could have been people take that survey that were God-haters and claimed to be evangelicals. We, we understand the limits of this. But don't we see this working its way out? We see this way, working its way out in many ways. But the idea that corporate worship is somehow unimportant is strong in our country today, even among church-going peoples. Maybe it's a statement you would agree with. Now, we're not just talking about attending in our church, are we? We talk a lot about what our worship services should contain. I've taught on this before, that, that we have certain elements in our worship service because God prescribes them in his word, but we are free as we exercise the forms of those elements. So scripture tells us that we are to give attention to the public reading of scripture. Amen? 
Paul tells Timothy that. But the forms of how we do that, there's freedom in that. We can have an individual read scripture. We can have a group of people read. We can have responsive readings, unison readings. There's freedom in the forms, but the element is there. And so we believe the elements of worship are in, that we are to pray and we are to preach and we are to give attention to the public reading of scripture and that we are to baptize when God gives us uh, people that have been saved and professing Christ. We're to celebrate the Lord's Supper. These are things we say that we do. But God's concern is how we do them. In fact, God rejects it when we do them from the wrong heart, according to the scriptures. And so what we have before us today is a passage in Isaiah where Isaiah is taking to task the worship practices, specifically fasting, but because it ends with another statement on the Sabbath, we know that it's not only fasting. These are the external entrapments or trappings, not entrapments, the, inter, the external trappings of worship, but it's also the external trappings of our life. And the question from Isaiah, the question from Yahweh through Isaiah, is if you are coming to me in worship, why does the rest of your life look like things that do not please me? So that's the question for us today, isn't it? We're here, but does the rest of our life look like a life that pleases God? Does the rest of our life reveal to the world around us that we are seeking justice for people, that we are living sacrificially with people? That our, does the rest of our life reveal that our hearts have been changed by the Messiah? Because if, it, if they have been changed, then we don't just merely show up, but our hearts are turned toward him. And everything we do in worship is an act of love toward our Father, not duty. And the question that's overarching in chapter 58 from God is, why are you stopping, you're ceasing from eating in order to manipulate me. But I want you to cease from going after your own pleasure, which is sinful, and live in a way that pleases me. That's the overarching message here, and it's the overarching message for us. So I don't want you to get lost in the idea of fasting. I'm talking about, and I, because God is talking about in chapter 58, all those things that we do in worship, does it reveal a life that is turned toward God, that shouts the glory of God and the light of Christ through us? Turn to... Isaiah chapter 58, if you're not already there, and stand. I want you to know that as we looked at chapter 56 and 57 as one unit, two sermons, maybe even more, I don't remember, but one unit, chapter 58 and 59 form one unit as well. We'll look at chapter 59 next week, but beginning chapter 58, verse 1. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted? and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure 
and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast? A day acceptable to Yahweh? Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of the wicked of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of Yahweh shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and Yahweh will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking weak and speaking wickedness if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom will be as the noonday and yahweh will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden like a spring of water whose waters do not fail and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of Yahweh honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in Yahweh and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So in these verses, God reveals three scenarios describing the life he chooses to bless. Three scenarios describing the life he chooses to bless. Now, as you heard as we read through this, let's set the stage a little bit. Fasting is constantly before us until the last, until we get to the last two verses, 13 and 14. Then we return to the idea of the Sabbath, which we talked about in chapter 56. And then we had a complete sermon on how a New Testament believer should uh, obey the command to obey the Sabbath and to keep it holy. So all of that is ringing in our mind, first of all, and we'll, we'll come back to that, not in detail, but just our concluding thoughts um, on those, how it helps us understand chapter 58. But also, I, I want you to know that as we're going through this, since we're talking about keeping the Sabbath and fasting, it's the external practices of worship, of religion, that Yahweh is dealing with with his people. And he's comparing the external things they're doing in worship and looking at their life and saying, they don't mean what you think they mean. 
You're not achieving what you think you're achieving because you're doing things for your own purpose. So fasting may not be something that's in our mind all the time. So we can't take this, this chapter and just set it aside because we don't fast. It's talking about all of our external practices and whether they flow from the heart. Now, fasting was central in Scripture, but in the Old Covenant, in the law, it's only commanded on the Day of Atonement. That's the only place it's commanded. On the Day of Atonement, there was a, they were to have a fast, a community fast, a, a, a national fast. But it was practiced quite a bit, wasn't it? They were, the people would call a fast when they were repenting of sin. They were, they were fasting in sackcloth and ashes. They would, they would fast before a war or when they were pleading with the Lord for anything. We also see um, in other nations doing the same thing. Remember when, when Jonah went to preach at Nineveh and the king heard the preaching and what did he do? He called the entire nation to a total fast from food and from water and not just the people but all the way down to the animals. And he called that fast and told them, while you're fasting, you need to turn from your evil ways and perhaps God will heal us. And then God said, he saw the people, but he doesn't say he acted because of their fasting. He says he acted because they turned from their evil ways. So the fasting was the external mark of suffering, the external mark of, of placing themselves in a place of suffering so that they would have time to repent before God and seek his face. And God saw the trueness of their hearts and he responded. We see it in the New Testament. Jesus teaches on fasting as, as, as an assumption that his people would be fasting. He tells them to do it um, in, in private and, and to make sure that you, that you present yourself as presentable, not miserable when you're in public. Don't broadcast the fact that you are, you are doing something, that you are giving up your food so that you can spend time with me. Don't broadcast that. It's the same way as your prayer. It should be done in private, not broadcast on the street. But there are many places that we see, not only do we see the positive aspects like Jesus going into the wilderness and fasting and pulling away at times to pray and, and to fast, but we also see it taken to task with the legalism that was done at the time. Remember the Pharisee standing, standing on the corner with the tax gatherer. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men, especially this tax collector. And then he brags about fasting. But yet the tax collector is the one who leaves justified, not the Pharisee. We see it a little bit in Acts. We see it when the church at Antioch set aside Paul and Barnabas to send them on their missionary journey in chapter 13. They did it through prayer and fasting. And then when Paul and Barnabas on that first leg were planting churches and appointing elders, they, they appointed those elders through prayer and fasting. But we don't see it much other than that. And in the epistles, we don't see it at all. So... We accept that fasting is something that believers have the option to do, never commanded to do it, but it's the option. And it is the, the purpose of it is to sacrifice, to set aside something that is needy for us and to say, I don't need that now. The Lord will provide for me spiritually because, what did Jesus say? We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So it's a time for us to set aside a need and know that God and trust him that he will provide for our physical strength, our physical health, and that that time is spent instead of fixing and eating and cleaning up afterwards, spent with the Lord. So there's nothing wrong with fasting, but doing it without an internally changed heart is useless. You just go hungry. That's, the, that's what we keep in mind here. So it's not merely fasting, but it includes fasting. It is all of life. Look at your text. 
The first scenario describing the life God chooses to bless is that God does not choose to bless the fast that is outward only. The first verse is a, is, a, is a call to a herald, right? It's a call for Isaiah or another herald to cry aloud, literally from the throat is what the Hebrew says. So it's a, it's a loud and forceful cry, and they are to, to not hold back that cry. They're to lift up that voice like a trumpet, that, that shofar, that ram's horn, which is piercing and, and loud and gets everyone's attention. It, it, it's similar to the other night when those sirens went off. And they woke you up and you were trying to figure out what to do because you heard the sirens and you were listening for the sirens. This is that kind of a thing. But the picture is when the people are worshiping, stand up in the midst of them and call out their sin. That'd be a welcome invitation, wouldn't it? The people would say, oh, great, the herald calling us sinners. That's a good thing. It would not be received well. But it should be if their hearts are right. So that's where we start. Call out to them, and I put it to condemn their sin, but it's condemning through bringing it to light. Tell them that they are sinning. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Now, let's stop and realize we're dealing with an Old Testament text. Isaiah is writing in that late 8th, early 7th century BC. This section of Isaiah has very specifically in its target, not only the people of Isaiah's day, but the people who were being released just as they're released and after they're released from exile in Babylon 150 years later. And we believe in the truth of the scriptures and that's the way the scriptures bring it. We don't, we don't have to try to cram this in our brain and say, well, that makes no sense to us and how could Isaiah do this? We trust the scriptures. But we also know that this second half of Isaiah is intended for us. It's intended for everyone who is living in light of the work of the Messiah. It's all based on those messianic uh, songs that we went through, especially the fourth one, the, the suffering servant song. So what does it look like as people are trusting in that suffering servant before he comes? And what does it look like for the people like us who have trusted in him after he's come? Well, this is a picture of our life as well. Remember when we talked about how a, a believer in, in after the cross and after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ should obey the Sabbath, we said the primary way to obey the Sabbath is to enter into your rest from your own works of trying to save yourself. We made the case for that, a long case throughout the New Testament, but that's where we enter into our rest. We enter into our rest when we trust in Jesus. So if we take the end of this, the call to celebrate the Sabbath in a way that pleases the Lord, we know that for us, the way we're, we are obeying the Sabbath is first and foremost, it's coming to Christ, and then it's also trusting in the finished work of Christ as we live in this world and crucify sin and, and turn back to Christ because of the gifts that he's given us. So as we go through this text, we are going to look at both a physical fulfillment and a spiritual fulfillment because that's what it is for us. And that's what's intended to be for us. Why? Because chapter 3, we've already learned about the work of the Messiah and what he did and what it accomplished and how it pleased God for him to do that. So God does not choose to bless the fast that is outward only. First, he condemns their sin and he speaks to us, doesn't he? He speaks to us today. This is what we do every Sunday, right? We, we look at the word, we study it all week, we're in discipleship groups, we're in growth groups, we're studying on our own, we're studying in our families, we come to church, we hear it preached and read and sung and prayed, and all the while God is speaking to us and revealing our sin, 
and holding out to us the finished work of Christ so that we can repent of our sin and walk in the blessings of the Lord. So this is what we do every Sunday when we come together. It is only happy, happy, joy, joy for those who are in Christ, right? Because even, even when we are pursuing sin, the Spirit of God in us re rejoices when the Word of God is preached and He convicts us and we repent of sin and we trust in Him again and we go about the business of living a life that pleases God. So this is a call to us. It's our, it would be our weekly service. Now just imagine if a herald stood in front of you and then started naming your sins out loud, challenging you. Look at verse 2. Not only he condemns their sin, but he exposes their unrighteousness. So you're to cry out to them about their transgression, about their sin, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. Now that sounds like a good thing, right? Isn't it a good thing for God's people to seek him daily and delight in knowing his ways? It would be, but look at those two little words in the ESV that are right at the center, in that center line of verse 2. As if. You see God exposing their hearts? They are outwardly doing this, and the people who outwardly do these things should be doing other things in their life when they're not gathered together to worship. So they are seeking God daily. They're delighting to know his ways, which are not bad things at all. And these are emphatic words. Me, me, they seek daily as if they were a nation that did righteousness, which means they're not a nation who does righteousness, and as if they did not forsake the judgment of their God, which they have forsaking the judgment of their God. What God has said in his word, how he has spoken, they've forsaken that and they've gone their own way. This is the reason we need the Messiah, right? All we like sheep have gone our own way. We've gone astray. And so right in the middle, that as if helps us to see that God is saying, you are seeking me daily, you delight to know my ways. And look at the end of that verse. They ask of me righteous judgments. So they're coming to God saying, um, give us your wisdom, help us make discern, discerning righteous judgments here. And they delight to draw near to God. So the four things, two on the front and two on the back, in the center are negated because their motives are wrong. And he knows their motives are wrong because all the rest of their life is not pursuing righteousness. If they were truly God's people and doing what he pleased, they would be pursuing righteousness on a daily basis. So he's going to develop that thought even more. So he condemns their sin. He exposes their unrighteousness, but also he rebukes their complaint. Look at verse 3. This is the people speaking. Why have we fasted? and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? So what's this reveal about the heart of the people? It reveals that he is a slot machine in the sky, doesn't it? They are doing these things so that they get what they want. They are not doing these things, these acts of worship, in a way to please him. So they say, what, what is going on here? We've done what you said, but yet you act like you don't see or understand it. Well, the very fact that God is dealing with it gives us evidence that he sees and understands it. And it also gives us evidence of God's grace to them, doesn't it? Because if he did see and understand their sinful, unrighteous ways of worship, what would he do? He would rise up in judgment and kill them all because he's righteous and he's holy. So his patience 
is intended to draw them to repentance. So the, the, the complaint comes, the complaint to God, which is actually a blessing on them that God doesn't actually see and respond to what they're doing. And then God returns and he gives his uh, appraisal here in the second half of verse three. Behold, so there's that word for us. Listen, uh, give attention to this. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. You seek your own pleasure. Now listen, our life is about seeking the glory of God. Our pleasure is met in our life when our pleasure is his pleasure. If, if we have pleasures in our life that God, does, it's not a pleasure to him, it's, it's not a gift from him that we're using in the right way, it does not please him, then it shouldn't be our pleasure. That, that's an automatic need for us to repent from that kind of thinking, is it not? And so he says, the way you're worshiping, the way you are presenting your fast, you, you are seeking your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Now, we've been in Isaiah long enough to know that justice for the oppressed is a primary thought in the Old Testament. It's also a primary thought in the New Testament, which we'll see in a moment, but this is something that if we are a people of God, the herald would say, then we should not be oppressing our workers. Now, how are they oppressing? Isaiah doesn't say. It could be a many different ways. Maybe they just constantly oppress them and there's no change when they're fasting. Maybe they take the day off because they're fasting and they make their workers work long days and their workers complain and they oppress them when they complain. We don't know but the idea is, if you are my child, you will not oppress your workers. You especially would repent of doing that when you come before me with your fast, with your worship. So not only he condemns their sin, he exposes their unrighteousness, he rebukes their complaint, but he also reveals their fast to be ineffective and unacceptable. Look at verse 4. Now divided, he's going to continue talking about their fast, but he gives us another behold. So I think he's, he's making another statement that is related to, but is separate from what he's already said. He says, behold, in the middle of verse three, verse four starts the same way. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked, feast, a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. So their life is marked by anger, by oppression, that whatever this looks like, they're quarreling and fighting. Now, the one thing that should happen when you enter into a study of the scriptures, remember, is this the only time we worship? It's not, is it? Our entire life is an act of worship before God. There is something that the scripture marks out as important about our gathering in worship that it does not happen in our individual worship. But our whole life is worship. Our whole life is an act of worship to God. And so their life is outside. No matter what is going on, their life is marked by quarreling and fighting and to hit with a wicked fist, to be evil and depress people and to keep them in their oppression, which would be the opposite of what God would say to do. It's also spiritually the opposite of what Christ came to do, right? Christ came to set the captives free. And so thereby their physical acts are showing that the spiritual act has never happened, that they are not truly focused on their Lord. And then he says, fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. 
Now this is their intent, right? We've fasted, but you haven't heard. You've acted like you don't have any knowledge of our fast. And he's telling them why. Fasting like this, you're not gonna be heard on high. Now that doesn't mean that God doesn't hear it, right? God hears everything. He knows everything. But he's saying you're doing this with a purpose that will never succeed because your hearts are not toward me. You don't want to know what I said, what I would do about this situation or how I would answer your prayer because you have not obeyed when I've already spoken. You've already showed yourself to be that. And God calls them out on that. Remember verses like Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have heard. This is a word to us, isn't it? Even those of us as believers, when we are constantly cherishing sin, and yet we come before him in prayer, in Bible reading, and fasting, and we're asking him for things, and we're not repenting of that sin, we're not saying, Lord, forgive me of that sin, and turning back to faith and trust in the finished work of Christ that that sin is forgiven, but that you are being sanctified, conformed into the image and likeness of Christ, day by day by day as you go on. And God says, I, listen, you can ask all you want, and I hear what you're saying, but I'm about something different. And if you're his child, he's about disciplining you so you return to faith and trust in him. If you are not his child, he's about revealing the fact that you don't have light in you. And he does that throughout the life. That's why believers are repenters every single day. We realize that the blood of Christ has cleansed us from all unrighteousness, but we still have sin in this life to fight. And sometimes we get lazy. Sometimes we get beat down and we say, I'm not going to fight sin today. I'm just going to sit there and let it consume me. I know you know what this feels like. And the Bible is constantly reminding us, no, this is our life. Luke talked about Romans 6 this morning. This is our life. Romans 6 is the picture of what the life of a believer looks like. We've been freed from sin, so don't go back down to sin and present your members as, as for unrighteousness to sin, to the sin master. This is our benefit and our blessing. Well, the Old Testament saints had the same way, but they didn't have Christ as already finished work. They were looking forward to the finished work in Christ of Christ and, and thinking about all God's promises and trusting him that they will come true. So he's bringing this fast that he does not bless. Look at verse five. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? That's the external act. Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? That's the external act. It's not necessarily wrong, but if it's not the fruit of a changed heart devoted to God, then it is useless and he says, will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to Yahweh? And what is the answer? No, you should not. You are calling it acceptable, but you should not. So we begin this whole section of a, of a life that God does not choose to bless. Now I want you to turn, if you will, keep your finger right here and turn back to chapter one. We've, we've gone back to this passage before, but this is very similar to where Isaiah started. But I want you to notice that in chapter one, it's brought with all condemnation. You're doing this and you're gonna be condemned. In chapter 58, the same ideas are carried forth, but it's brought with the promise of blessing. The, 
The judgment is implied, but blessing is what is being held out because these are the people that are coming out of, the, uh, out, of the, uh, out of Babylon. These are the people that God had brought back as the remnant. These are the people who are entrusted with rebuilding the temple these are the, and the wall. These are the people that God has delivered so that the Messiah comes from this people and the line of David is kept clean and kept live through their, their coming back. Well, look at chapter, Isaiah chapter 51, beginning in verse 10. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, that's not a very good starting place, is it, for God's people to be related to Sodom and Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says Yahweh? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Now, those are things God prescribed. But there is a heart issue here that God is addressing from the very first chapter, the introduction to the introduction of this long book that we've been going through. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many pray prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. So many similarities between that opening text and our text here. They're calling them to repentance and saying, if you repent, there'll be blessings. Uh, but in chapter 58, it is calling them to repentance because these are God's people. These are God's people who are living one way, and he's saying, if you quit living for your own pleasure, then you will be blessed. So look back at, in Isaiah 58, verse 6, as we see the second scenario describing the life he chooses to bless. God does choose to bless the fast that flows from inward change and selfishly seeks, selflessly seeks justice and mercy. So God chooses to bless the life that flows from inward change and selflessly seeks justice and mercy. That is the sign of the inward change, of giving of yourself and living that life. Look at verse six. He's already said what is not an acceptable fast to him. Now he says, is not this the fast that I choose? And what follows is the fast that he chooses. This is where he says, you, you are choosing to give the wrong thing up. Don't give up food and keep your sin. Give up sin and get me. Give up sin so that you are pleasing to me instead of pleasing to yourself. And he starts it this way. Is this not the fast that I choose? To lose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free? And to break every yoke? 
Now you heard that kind of language in chapter one, right? So there is a reality. Remember, these are people who oppress their workers. These are people who raise the fist, who deal out of anger. And, and there's, there's not, it's their characteristic. It doesn't give us all the reasons God knows that, but it's what marks them. And so these would be the people that keep people in bondage. These, pe- these are the people who keep people under a yoke and they shouldn't do that because God is concerned about those who are oppressed. And all the way through scripture, the prophets take the leaders, and we've done this, seen this several times in Isaiah already, and the first thing he rebukes them for is their own arrogant control of things where other people are oppressed, and they're the ones who are living the, the life of luxury. Remember that James says in chapter one, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. So the New Testament affirms this idea. It is the giving of yourself and ministering to others who are in need and is definitely the opposite of keeping people under your thumb. But I want you to think of that spiritual side as well. The spiritual side is this is why the Messiah comes, right? It's to set us free from the yoke and the burden of sin. And we've seen that over and over with all of the Exodus language where just as God delivered them out of captivity to Egypt, Jesus, the Messiah, the suffering servant is coming to deliver all of these people out of captivity to sin. That's what enables Paul to write Romans 6, isn't it? It's because God has delivered his people from the captivity of sin. So he starts out with this idea, and look what he says. You undo the straps of the yoke, but that's not just enough. You don't set them free and keep your yoke looking for someone else. Keep that that way to bind people up. The last phrase is to break every yoke. So you unstrap them, set them free, and then break the yoke so you don't do it again that you don't keep people entrapped. Spiritually, this is what happens to us, and this is what we preach to other people. We're preaching so that they are relieved from the bondage of sin so that they can live in such a way that pleases God. So we have both these ideas, physical and spiritual, running together. Look at verse seven. Is it not, now remember, this is the fast that he chooses, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, that is your own flesh and blood, your own, your own family. So we know what those means. Those statements mean, are you looking for people who are suffering and are you endeavoring to aid them in their suffering sacrificially? Why can you do that? Because you trust God for your provisions. If you give all of your food that day to people who need it, God will provide it again because he says that he will take care of you. And if you go hungry for a day, that's no big thing because bread isn't, your, isn't why you live. You live to, to love God and to do what he tells you to do and to minister the gospel to other people. So these are acts of faith to be able to put yourself in situations, and I'm talking about you, not just the Israelites, to be able to put yourself in situations where it might be risky. Now, I'm not talking about that now you have to give to the guy standing at the corner of McCain and the exit ramp. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about enabling people in their sin. I'm talking about living among people enough to know their needs and then to use your resources and your time to pour into their life. That's what's being shown here. And it's being shown because it is a mark of a changed heart. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for him. And God is a God who cares about the oppressed. And he uses us to carry out his will. Now, I want you to see this structure here. We don't have if statements in verse six and seven, but, but it's the same thing. He's saying, this is what I'm looking for. 
And when you do that, then, and just follow me at the beginning of these lines, verse eight, then, verse nine, then. If you pursue the fast that pleases me, then is a blessing, then is a blessing. The middle of verse nine, if, if, beginning of verse 10, and then in 10 and 11, then, and, and, and. Then, and then, and then, and then. Live like this, here are your blessings. You get the idea? We've set up now that we are, uh, that, that God's people at times will not do what pleases God. And he's calling us out and he's saying, when you do what pleases me, this is the covenant life. This is the covenant blessings that I promise. This is how you will be blessed by me when you live a life that pleases me. So look at verse eight as we see the first blessing. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of Yahweh shall be your rear guard. So these promises, these promises have, have the idea. Remember what we learned in chapter nine? There are many who are walking in darkness. And these are the, the, the passages that are quoted at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. There are many who are walking in, in darkness, but on them a light will shine. A light will appear to them and on them, specifically, directly, it will shine. And so the promise is, then shall your light break forth like the dawn. The light in you, because you are in Christ. When we look at a New Testament application, Christ is in us, and we, he is the light of the world, but we are lights in the world as well, and it's not us, it's Christ. And that is shown as we obey him in the world, the if statements in six and seven. Your light will break forth like the dawn, your healing shall spring up quickly, it's not promising physical healing all the time. Most of us in this room can say, well, if that's the case, I'm not getting that blessing because I have sore joints all the way up to Miss Miriam with cancer or Mike now with a tweaked back in the emergency room. We're going to have physical aches and pains, but this is that holistic peace that comes upon us when we are in right, right fellowship with God because of Christ, but then obedient because he loves us and we love him back. Your righteousness shall go before you. Now, that's talking about the acts that are now righteous instead of unrighteous because they're what God calls us to do. It's not our own righteousness. But there's the front guard, and the rear guard is the glory of Yahweh. Like, like a pillar and fire where he's going before us and he's behind us, so there's safety. You may die, but hallelujah, you'll be with Jesus. Your spiritual life is safe in the hands of God. Your resources, when you give them away, safe in the hands of God. Pouring yourself out for other people, that's safe in the hands of God. And he will guard you front and back because this is a life that pleases him. But look what else it says. Then, verse 9, then you shall call and Yahweh will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. Now, what have they done earlier? We fasted, and you haven't seen it. We've done what you ask, and you haven't heard. And God says, you want me to hear you? Because that kind of fasting will not have your voice heard on high. This kind of fasting, this is what my people do. This is, this is how you demonstrate that you are my people. And what a glorious thing. God himself, when we call, says, here I am. The creator of the universe to you while you're still fighting sin in this life, you call on God and he hears you. 
He heard you when he saved you, and he hears you when you call out of a pure heart. Now, this is, this is instructive for us, both because of the promise of God's eminence. Remember, we looked at that just last week or the week before. He is transcendent, but he's also eminent. He dwells with his people in order to strengthen them. This is what it looks like. This is how we know you're the people that are going to be strengthened. It's also the mark of the observant um, Christ followers, God followers, when God appears to them, isn't it? Here I am. This is what happened when Abraham uh, was told to take his son up on the mountain. Take Isaac up there and sacrifice him. And what, when, when Yahweh shows up, what does Abraham say? Here I am. This is what Jacob says when God appears to him more than once. God speaks, here I am. This is what Moses says at the burning bush looking at a burning bush and Yahweh speaks to him and his first thing is, here I am. This is the response of people who are after the heart of God. It is also the response of Samuel. If you remember, Samuel, when he's called, he hears the voice of the Lord and three times he goes to Eli because he thinks Eli's calling him. And as soon as he hears the voice of the Lord, Samuel says, here I am. And on the third time, Eli says, you're being called by God and gives him instruction of what to do. This is what Isaiah says, right? He sees the glory of the Lord. He's undone by his sin and the sin of his people. His lips are cleansed, symbolizing that salvific work by God. And the first thing he says is God says, who's going to go for us? And what does he say? Here I am. I will go. This is what Ananias said when God said, there's a guy named Paul, Saul of Tarsus. I want you to go to him. Tells him where to go. And he says, he kills us. He kills Christians. But the first response that he had out of his mouth was, here I am when God speaks. So when God speaks to you through his word, our position is automatically, here I am. Here I am. I'm here to hear you. I love you. My, my love is demonstrated to you by my obedience to what I hear in the word. My love is demonstrated to you when I hate what you hate and love what you love. My love is demonstrated to you when I love the, the people who are oppressed and struggling because you love the oppressed and the struggling. My love is demonstrated to you when I hear your voice and my first response is, here I am. That's the life that God blesses. That's the life that walks in the trough of blessing because he promises to bless those who obey him. Look back at verse 9. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speak and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, now that first part of verse 10 we've already talked about, the yoke, remember, that's what was the first description of the fast that he uh, prescribes for us is to unstrap the yoke, let the oppressed go free, and then break the yoke. But he also talks about other aspects of our life, pointing our finger and speaking wickedness. Keep your finger here in Isaiah 58, and I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 12. Proverbs 6, 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. There's our phrase. That's all manipulative behavior. That's what the wicked do. 
Put the yoke on other people and get them to do what you want them to do. Verse 14, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that Yahweh hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. You see the connection with our text? This is that wagging finger. This is showing that you have not gotten rid of the yoke, gotten rid of the yoke. And he says, if you will do these things, and that this again is, this is fasting from the things that God hates and turning to the things that please God. Fasting from sin and the evil, you can fast from food, but make sure that as you're doing that, you're fasting from your wicked ways and you're turning back to God for, for in repentance for his blessing. Well, look at the then passages that come up after verse, in the middle of verse 10. Then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. So there's no more depression. There's no more being overwhelmed by your sin. Um, it'll rise and fill up the darkness. Your, your gloom, your depression will be as the noonday because then you have the light of Christ. The light of Christ is showing itself strong in you and you are not overcoming it with your sin Verse 11, and, these are all blessings, and Yahweh will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. If you're fasting, God will, will sustain you through that. And you'll be sustained. He will give you your desire, if it's his desire, even in scorched places. So, so the, the giving of your desire, that, that's a given. That's been promised. You're desiring the things that he desires, but it will even happen when everything around you is scorched earth. That's a great promise, isn't it? Especially if you're going to go out into the world and live for Christ and his gospel. And, middle of verse 11, you shall be like a watered garden. Now remember, in chapter 1, verse 30, disobedient Israel was described as a garden without water. So from chapter 1 to chapter 58, what happens? The Messiah comes. The Messiah is promised, and that is overturned. It's just one of those agricultural metaphors. If you don't water your garden and God doesn't water it for you, it dies. And that's what Israel looked like in their unrepentant sin. But when you are living in a way that pleases God, then you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, verse 11 continues, whose waters do not fail, because it's not your water. It's the blessings and sustenance of the Lord to those who love him. Finally, in verse 12, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundation of many generations and you shall be called repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Now that's a direct promise to those coming out of captivity, right? But it's also a promise to us because as we live like this and people see Christ and come to Christ and we are preaching the gospel of Christ as the reason that we can pour ourselves out, his kingdom is, in adva is advancing and we're closer and closer and closer to that fulfillment of the true land promise, the new heaven and the new earth where we will live without sin and we will all dwell in the presence of God and in his light. That's the promise that's being given. Well, finally... The third scenario describing the life he chooses to bless is found in verse 13 and 14. 
God chooses to bless the one who obeys and delights in him and his Sabbath. Now here's where we're not going to rehash everything that we've, that we've done over two sermons, but look what it says. Two more ifs and then blessing. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, now here's the description of what that means, from doing your pleasure on my holy day. So listen, if you are not yet in Christ, because that's what this is pointing to with the Sabbath. If you are not yet in Christ, then you need to quit pointing your feet down your own pleasures, toward your pleasures and doing things in your own strength, doing things in your own knowledge and your own wisdom because it will lead to destruction because you're calling on some sort of a deity whenever you get fed up to call and everybody calls to someone when they're in struggle. And it will not be heard by the only one, the God of heaven and earth, who can answer that if you don't turn to him without having your own pleasures and your own desires in front, that you are giving him his due diligence. You are giving him his glory. You are turning everything in your life over to him so that you live the life that pleases him. And middle of verse 13 or the second uh, bicolon there and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasures or talking idly, that is talking with your own words in your own mouth, your own wisdom and all of that, if you will live like this, this is the Sabbath life we've talked about in chapter 58 and on the day that we went through what the Sabbath was for a believer, here's the blessing. Then you shall take delight in Yahweh. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. That is complete sustenance, all the provision that you need. It's Old Testament language used coming out of the exile. It's, It's one of the praises to God for providing everything that we need. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. All the blessings of the covenant will come to you. And when we are those in Christ, we are entering into the new covenant, We are entering into the covenant that's better than the old, the covenant that Jesus inaugurates as the better priest, the the better offering. We are entering into that covenant so our sins are forgiven, so that we have light shine on us in our darkness, so that we can now live a life that pleases him. All the blessings of the old covenant to to the Israelites fulfilled and, and, and expanded and its full glory in the new covenant in Jesus Christ are ours. If We come to Christ on his terms and live for Christ on his terms. And if we do that, our life looks different. The world knows that we are Christ followers. God knows our hearts, but he's looking at the outward saying, that's flowing from your heart that's changed. And you say, is it really that important? Do I have to do these things? Is is loving Jesus not enough? Well, let me tell you, if you say you love Jesus and your life doesn't look like this, you don't love Jesus. Final passage, Matthew 25. We won't even turn back to Isaiah, so just turn there with me as we we close this sermon. Matthew 25. I know I'm not supposed to say when I close, but I really am closing, so it's safe. Listen to how those who are Christ's and those who are not, the sheep and the goats, are described. And you decide 
whether a life that pleases God that outwardly reflects his character, outwardly, outwardly reflects his command, outwardly reflects what he is passionate about in seeking justice and caring for people and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ so that light dawns on others so that they come in. Just let these words soak over you and make sure that you understand that if you are not living this life, you need to repent of that sin so that you are walking more in the blessings of Christ. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but, on the, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom, prepare for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you drink and when did we see a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you and when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you and the king will answer them truly I say to you as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers you did it to me then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick, in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The way we live our life in this world should flow from the Christ living in us and the changed heart and his love for us flowing out to the world for love to others. That is the outward religion that pleases God. We come here and you open your Bibles at home and we gather together in fellowships as a result of our changed heart, not to manipulate God to do what we want. And he knows the hearts of all men but this is why we pursue these things because this is what pleases God and the life that God chooses to bless. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us and your mercies. It is constant that we come into your word and we're convicted, but we're also encouraged because you promise us blessings when we obey. We don't earn our salvation and we are thankful that it's not left up to us because we would never walk in our salvation. But you do tell us that you have planned works before the foundation of time that we would walk in. And those works would be the evidence of your grace in us. So we pray, Lord, that we would take this to heart and 
that our life, if it needs rearranged, if our priorities need rearranged, if our attitudes need rearranged, do that today. For we are, people, we are a people who come to you desiring to repent and to turn to you. And when you speak to us, that we would be the ones who say, here we are. Because we're resolved to follow you as our Savior. We are resolved, Father, to love your Son and work through the power of your Spirit in a way that brings you glory and advances your kingdom in the world. We are resolved, Father, to reorganize our life, to give up all of our idols so that we are only walking in a way that pleases you and all of our desires are conformed to your desires. For that brings you glory and we will be protected. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.